Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Cotton Story, sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, Fiber Development Manager and Manager of the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program from BASF and host of today's program. Well, today we will um, continue and just talk a little bit about discussion around apparel sourcing um, from the CAPTA and other regions with one of the leading experts on apparel sourcing. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Shane Liu back on the um, show today. He's been on here before and he just is a wealth of knowledge in many areas. Um, today, though, we're really going to tap into him and to really discuss um, apparel sourcing from CAFTA DR region with um, and, and just some of the maybe implications or what's really going on with that. I'm also excited to be joined today by industry consultant Bob Anishak. So, Bob, how are things? Things are good, Jennifer. Hope you're doing well. I am. I am doing great. I'm excited that it is almost Easter, some warm weather, spring break. So. Ready to get into the summertime. (laughs) Good stuff. There you go. Yes. Well, as I said, I'm really excited and happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Shang Liu. Uh, And Dr. Liu is a very well-known and respected researcher, analyst, and as well as an associate professor of fashion and um, studies at the University of Delaware. So, Dr. Liu, thank you so much for um, being on today. Sure. Thank you, Jennifer. Very happy to I'll return to the program. Well, you know, Dr. Shang, I know you um, heard anything in the fashion and apparel space. Um, I know they are probably very familiar with you and knowing that you're an expert and had a very accomplished career in the apparel industry, but also as a professor. But for those who maybe aren't as familiar um, with you or maybe from a different portion of the cotton world, was wondering if you know, before we dive into a lot of the discussion today about the CAFTA DR market, if you would, you know, mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your background so that our listeners can learn a little more. Sure. So thank you again for inviting me, Jennifer and Bob. Um, definitely your program is one of my favorite. Um, so um, if you're interested in my work, um, I would recommend you to check my blog site called shenlufashion.com. And personally, I call it the least fashionable fashion block in the world. Because, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true. true. That's true. Yeah. Because truly, you know, this, this website um, is, is not about fashion magazine. It's not about Project Runway. But it can tell you why fashion is possible because of international trade and trade policy, which are also my favorite research topics. So I think I'm one of the very few economists working in a fashion department. Um, but I truly love my job now for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is um, I feel very fortunate to have the chance to work with um, the best fashion students um, in the country. So our students are really talented, um, very bright, very hardworking, and they represent the future. And also, by the way, um, at UD, we also have one of the best fashion program in the country too. Um, but also, you know, truly these days, I definitely see the value of my work or oh, just put it in this way, I find myself actually work longer hours. I don't know why, but <laughs> there's a lot <laughs> happening in cotton exactly. the past couple of years. <laughs> exactly. Just think about all these dramas, okay? All these agendas, you know, from COVID nineteen, supply chain crisis, trade war, right? Trade war is not mm-hmm. over yet. Supply chain transparency, social responsibility, impacts of very kinds of free trade agreement. 
Yeah, so I just want to you know, really contribute to the discussion of these very important topics. And I also hope that you know, my research outcome can be you know, valuable both to our academia and also to the industry. So that's me. Well, Shang, I have to say you have the best blog. So everyone, check out the blog. It really, <laughs> it really is informative. Thank you. Very, very informative. And um, what's neat, too, is Shang will often post uh, lessons for students on his blog, too. So that's really fun to, to, to read through. Um, Shang, you and I have had, uh, or I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the years. And we've, we've done uh, seminars together. We've done podcasts. We've done webinars We've, we've done all kinds of uh, presentations, and we even um, write columns for uh, some of the major publications in the industry. Um, right. You and I each write a column uh, in Just Style. Uh, as I've told you many times, yours is much better than mine. So <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> but it's, a very, it's really neat. Our takes are very different on the business, and um, would encourage everyone to check out JustStyle.com. Uh, to to get the latest on what we what we both think, but Cheng, you have a very unique perspective on the industry. You've done enormous research um, on the industry globally, uh, and most recently, you wrote a column that I really was intrigued by, and it's entitled "How Can We Make the Make How Can the Made in USA Apparel Market Reach Its Full Potential?" It's a really terrific read, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that article. Sure, sure. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Yeah, so for that article, actually, um, you know, we have two major findings. Um, you know, the article tried to understand, you know, what prevents more made in USA apparel or maybe more apparel production in the Western Hemisphere. And I pick up a unique angle that is the supply of textiles. And we know uh, many apparel made in the Western Hemisphere and made in the U.S., they try to use U.S.-made textiles. You know, the good thing is, you know, on the one hand, you can see the value of U.S. textile output. Actually, it stays very stable. Or even despite, you no, know, all we can say, you know, despite COVID-19, the production actually almost kind of returned back to the pre-COVID level. That being said, Okay, we also find that all the data suggested that there is some very important structural change going on in the U.S. textile industry. So, you know, even though the, the total output remains stable, but kind of U.S. tried to make more and more industrial textiles, medical textiles, not those traditional textiles to be used or to be processed further for apparel production. So that kind of raised some very interesting questions. Okay, can U.S. continue to play its role as a leading textile supplier for the region? Now, personally, I don't want to jump to the conclusion, but I think it is interesting and maybe it's valuable to throw this question to the industry. So, well, yeah. you know, that's really interesting um, to say that, Dr. Shang. And, you know, it's the one thing about I've loved about the podcast, and I really appreciate your kind words, has been, hearing all the different components of the cotton industry, the textile industry, and having all the different guests we've had on here, looking at it in, you know, from a unique and different perspective. Um, and I've learned a tremendous amount from um, guests that have come on such as yourself and, you know, and looking at kind of like you were saying, um, you know, when we talk about with the, um, 
CAFTA and DR, you know, this really was the first of its kind or is the first of its kind that we've got these trade agreements with smaller countries, um, you know, in the U.S. and we've looked at it. But when you look at it, you know, what do you think um, are some of the latest, you know, sourcing trends coming out of there? And for those who maybe aren't as familiar uh, for some of the countries that CAFTA covers, um, the DR, and then as well as, you know, when we look at these regions, do you think that it's more focused on basics or complex garments? So really just kind of, you know, love to hear you kind of a little bit about what's coming from that policy. Sure, that's a very great and important question. So I can put it in this way. So um, actually, U.S. sources its textile and apparel products from many countries in the world. And according to statistics, um, apparel you know, consumed in the U.S., they come from over 150 different countries. However, trade data also suggests actually most of these apparel, they come from two regions in the world. One is Asia. So Asia currently accounts for about three-fourths of total U.S. apparel imports, but also it's about Western Hemisphere, including CAFTA-DR. So even though CAFTA-DR, it seems to be a very hot topic these days, but actually I want to say CAFTA-DR is not something new. So this free trade agreement actually was enacted back in 2006. And actually over the past decade, very stably, very stable, about 10 to 12% of U.S. total apparel imports come from capital regions. So you know, if you, you know, just depends on how you, in, how you interpret this trade data. So from a positive side, you, know, you can say, oh, this trade volume is very stable. But also we can say, maybe, maybe this also means there is a lack of growth, mm. especially you know, you know, after capital DR, why this trade agreement did not, did not result in more US apparel sourcing from the region. So even if you look at the trade data, very interesting. Back in 2006, actually about 15% of U.S. apparel imports came from CAFTA-DR members. But last year, the number was only less than 10. So actually, CAFTA-DR kind of you know, was mm. not very successful in bringing more sourcing volume from the region. So this can be related to the second part of your question. So what products actually U.S. fashion brands and retailers typically source from the CAFTA-DR region? So I both checked the trade data and some industry level data, and they draw the same conclusion. Um, over 80%, really nearly you know, 70 to 80% of US apparel imports from capital deal regions focus on either tops or bottoms, or we can say they're relatively basic fashion items, okay? No, somehow I think it is similar to our university. No, we all want to you know, increase our enrollment, so how you can do that? Of course, the most effective way is to add more majors, add more popular majors, right? The more majors you can add, of course, you can attract more students and vice versa. And this is the problem with capital DR because you only focus on relatively basic items, very limited product category, just like tops and bottoms. And as consumers, we can only consume so much tops and bottoms. Of course, you miss a lot of growth opportunity. So this probably well, um, no, explain why the sourcing volume from Catholic beer no, failed to enjoy some substantial growth over the past decade, despite of this trade agreement. But definitely, this is my personal interpretation. Shang, as a uh, follow-up to Jennifer's question, um, and I have to ask this, <laughs> this is the big thing, the big uh, 
gorilla in the room um, is what's your opinion about yarn forward rules of origin and government policy up, up until now? Sure, sure. So that's a very important question. So um, before I jump to yarn forward, so uh, let me you know, you know, explain this. So people may see, so as consumers, when we go shopping, we probably you know, do not tell the difference between an item you know, labeled made in China, made in Vietnam versus made in Honduras or made in our Salvador. However, however, for the U.S. textile and apparel industry, it makes a huge difference. Why? Because for most U.S. apparel imports from Asia, they typically use Asia-made textile raw materials like yarn and fabrics. However, for U.S. apparel imports from CAFTA-DR members, more likely, much more likely, they will use U.S.-made yarn and fabrics. So you will see the label which says, or oh, made in Honduras of imported fabrics, or even directly say using imported fabrics from the U.S. So why is that? So several reasons. One is, you know, even though you know, many people will see textile and apparel, they're the same industry, but actually they're very different. So textile manufacturing remains very capital and technology intensive, which means you know, as developing countries, many CAFTA-DR members, they still do not have the capacity of locally making textiles, okay? Or putting this way, they have to rely on imported textiles. So this is one thing. Second, so where, where CAFTA-DR members typically import their textiles? So thanks to the so-called yarn forward reserve origin, which means if CAFTA-DR members, they want to export their apparel to the U.S. duty-free, or U.S. fashion brands and retailers, if they want to import apparel from CAFTA-DRs duty-free, they have to meet certain reserve origin requirements. That is yarn and fabrics and a cut and a sew process all have to happen within members of CAFTA-DR. And as I explained earlier, within CAFTA-DR, kind of only the U.S. has the capacity of making textile raw material. So this is the results why you know, many U.S. apparel imports coming from CAFTA-DR members, they contain U.S.-made textiles, okay? However, however, you know, everything has two coins. So on one hand, you have this kind of regional integrated supply chain. Okay, or we call it regional you know, production and trade network. But also, you know, remember I mentioned at the beginning, the U.S. textile industry is shifting from making apparel-related textiles to making more industrial and technical textiles. So actually the supply, the textile supply from the U.S. actually is not sufficient enough to allow CAFTA-DR members to make different kinds of products. So this is the biggest concern. So for U.S. fashion brands and retailers to often say, okay, I do want to source more products from CAFTA-DR members, but they cannot do, or they cannot make enough different kinds of products, or the production volume is very low. That's the reality. So how to make a change? Allow me to source fabrics from outside mm. of the CAFTA-DR region. However, based on the current rule, once again, if they want to do that, you know, these apparel products won't be qualified for the duty-free benefits because of the yarn forward roots of origin. So you can see this is kind of the, the tricky thing, you know, yarn forward roots of origin, you know, resulting in more integrated regional supply chain, but at the same time may limit what kind of products we can source from the Capitadier region. So, uh, Shang, how would you compare well, that? So to, how, how do you, in your, 
Go ahead, Bob. Sure. Yeah, please. No, I was just going to say, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Shane, how would you yes. compare what you've seen in, in, in the CAFTA region to what's happened, say, with the NAFTA 2.0? Okay. And because uh, your point's well taken on basics coming out of CAFTA uh, in the uh, Dominican Republic. And then, uh, but in Mexico, I know we have more complicated garments that are coming into the U.S., made with U.S. components. Could you comment on that and uh, compare sure. and contrast? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's no. This well, this is an excellent question. So, so two comments. One is, and I would say, the kind of challenge facing you know CAFTA members now also face you know producers or garment producers in the NAFTA region or USMCA. So, still, if you look at what products we typically source from Mexico, also very limited to or relatively limited to just tops and bottoms. And also these products you know, can be very price or no, very price sensitive because they focus on relatively low end of the market, like a value market or mass market rather than luxury or premium market. So you know, consumers are very price sensitive. And also you know, US fashion brands and retailers actually source you know, majority of, you know, the majority of these products Know, from Asia rather than from Mexico or from Central America. But also, you know, you know I would say um, the devil is in the detail. So even though both these two trade agreements, they adopt the so-called yarn forward rules of origin. However, the meaning of the yarn forward actually can be different, right? And also in these two trade agreements, there are some different kinds of exceptions to the yarn forward rule, right? So for example, in you no, know, in USMCA or NAFTA, previously called NAFTA, we have you no know, more kind of you no know, no generous um, uh, a mechanism called tariff preference level TPL. However, for CAFTA DR, um, the debate is about short supply list. So these exceptions to the yarn rule also can make a difference. But no matter how, I think you no. Know, um, these trade rules and also the unique nature of textile and apparel production in the region um, actually will have an impact on what products can be made in the region and um, you know, how retailers treat the region as their sourcing base. And also things are evolving, things are evolving. So Dr. Um, Shang, one, I, I guess I had a couple of questions, but one to follow up sure. on um, that piece of it. Do we see countries beside, or do we see countries besides the U.S. or who would you see the U.S. is competing with um, in these areas for CAFTA DR for sourcing, or is it mainly just the U.S. and those countries um, sourcing from there, or do you see others because of what we've seen happen with cotton and some of the forced labor issues? Do we see other countries sourcing from here? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you no, know, I would say you know because of these you know factors you mentioned. Okay. There is a growing interest of expanding mm. more U.S. apparel sourcing from Central America or from the Western Hemisphere. Or we can say how to reduce China exposure or even reduce Asia exposure. You know, the challenge is you know, just what kind of products you really can source from the Western mm. Hemisphere, yeah. from Capital Deer. That's also a reality. So very interesting. I didn't notice... Um, Back in 2018, 2019, before we had the pandemic, at that time, we already had a U.S.-China tariff war, right? 
Mm -hmm. So companies already try to avoid the tariff war, try to find new sourcing base. And some no, some people say, okay, why not we just bring the sourcing orders back to this hemisphere? But actually, in, in reality, um, fashion brands and retailers mostly just brought their sourcing orders from China to Chinese competitors in Asia. Because if you look at what yeah. products this hemisphere can offer, still just only tops and bottoms. But actually, China serves as a supplier for very diverse group of products. And you know, most likely Vietnam, most likely other Asian countries altogether can fulfill that role, but not those in the Western hemisphere, not those in CAPTDR. So the key question here is how to help CAPTDR members to expand their product offer, to allow them to make more different kinds of products and, and, and very interesting, and at the same time, encourage them to continue to use textile raw right. material from the U.S. To me, actually, there are two very different goals. Well, it's very challenging to achieve these two goals at the same time, to be very honest. Yeah, and I guess, you know, you, you mentioned with some of the limitations, um, I'd be really interested to know, and hope, and I don't know if our listeners would too, but we think about the time, you know, and the policy and all, how do we know? You know, do we look at it? Do we say, yes, this has been a successful policy or no it hasn't you know and i know there's a lot smarter people who are writing policy and doing stuff um but really be interested from your standpoint from an economic space you know do you think this has been a an agreement that has been successful for the textile industry um for both parties in it exactly exactly this is a perfect question so i would say truly you know it depends on what is your priority goal Mm. If we measure the success of CAFA DRC based on how integrated the supply chain look like, and I would say CAFA DRC is very successful, right? Because, you know, you know like I mentioned earlier, most of U.S. apparel imports from CAFA DRC member, they will use U.S.-made yarn and fabrics. And this is something very exciting, very beneficial for U.S. domestic textile industry. But at the same time, because of, you know, the yarn forward roots of origin, you know, CAFDR members only make certain kind of products. And this really, you know, results in a many missed opportunity, uh, really results in, you know, underutilization of CAFDR because sometimes retailers find, you know, I can only source finished garments from CAFDR members, but I cannot fully meet the yarn forward roots requirements. So that's really, I mean, that's the reality. Very or even deteriorating utilization of capital DR, uh, very stagnant you know, sourcing volume. Mm-hmm. So based on that, and we can say still there are a lot of potential or something can be done further to make capital DR even more successful. And this even, you know, it, you know, it can be related to how to improve the situation. And I would say there are you know, two very different school of thought. So if you ask you know, fashion brands and retailers, so they will say, you know, if you want to, you know, ask me to, you know, source more from the cafeteria members, okay, allow me to have more flexibility yeah. to source the textile raw material, right? If I can source textile raw material from many other places, especially if this yarn and these fabrics are not made in the cafeteria uh, members, allow me to source them from elsewhere. Of course, you know, cafeteria countries can more easily, you know, make more different kinds of products. So this is one school of thought. However, if you talk to U.S. textile companies, 
So they strongly reject that idea. So they will say, you know, if you liberalize the, 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 the rules of origin, if you do not insist the young forward rules of origin, okay, I will lose my business. I will lose mm. my kind of guaranteed export market or you know, it will no longer make sense for me to continue to invest in the region. Right now, why I have to build new factories, new textile mills in Central America? You know, you can easily import products from Asia and still take advantage of this great opportunity. So, 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 so liberalizing rules of origin may discourage more investment in the region. So they want to keep the current rules of origin you know, you know, very strict. And they say that will, in, you know, will, in, you know, will incentivize more investment. But you know, at the same time, we have to realize the yarn forward rule has been there for decades. Right. If you mm-hmm. do not change anything, why you think we can you know, you know, have new changes in the current situation? So there also seems to be you no know, some concerns here. So yeah, maintaining the status quo won't improve the situation. But 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 what but what but what kind of changes can result in some long term benefits? So still, you no, know, I, I think the discussion, the debate will continue. Seems that way, Shang. Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. Thing, this thing will be going on forever, I think. Right, uh, right. Uh, what's the importance of speed to market? And, and question one. Secondly, what's your sense of uh, investment in the region? Um, does that change if the rule of origin gets modified? Or yeah, that's it? very, very good question. Um, first, to answer about speed to market. So I would say, you know, speed to market is... You know, one of many factors fashion brands and retailers they put into consideration when they decide where to source their products. And actually, you know, I would say these days the sourcing formula is very long, just like in the past. So we always, you know, kind of have an impression of sourcing is just about, you know, raising to the bottom or chasing the place that can offer the most competitive price. And actually, it's not the case. But also, it's not the case that you no know, price is no longer relevant price remains very important, but just being cheap is not sufficient enough to be regarded as a competitive sourcing base. The same with speed to market. If you can offer a speed to market, that's great, but you can also, but, but, you need, but you also need to meet the minimum requirements in terms of say, flexibility, agility, in terms of price point, in terms of compliance risk. So you know, being, you know, being good at speed to market definitely is one advantage, but you can you know you should also you know um, you know consider many uh, many other factors um, you know and retailers take a holistic view to evaluate the competitiveness um, of a sourcing base. So that's the kind of the current rules of the game. And for the second part of your question, investment. And you know, personally, you know you know I would say still there are two school of thoughts. So one is you know, like I mentioned earlier, um, especially this is the view of you no know, host. I mean I mean held by the U.S. textile industry. A very strict yarn forward rules of origin kind of can guarantee or incentivize more investment to the Cattedere region to you know, build new factories, yarn mills, or fabric mills. But also, we should not forget that there are some, you know, there are kinds of different, I mean, there's another kind of viewpoints, and it can be related to another trade preference program called AGOA, African Growth and Opportunity Act. So, for our audience, if you um, have heard about AGOA, and you may know that AGOA actually adopts a very liberal rules of origin. So any apparel products um, coming from AGOA members, 
Um, they can you know, use fabrics, use yarn, use textiles coming from anywhere in the world. Um, this is the so-called third country fabric rule. The idea of allowing this very liberal rules of origin is as long as the sourcing volume goes up, okay, more investments will come in. They will see the financial kind of benefits or the financial opportunity of investing or building the local textile factories. The same can apply to the captive DR members. Remember, currently only 10% of US apparel imports come from captive DR members. So what if the sourcing volume doubled? Okay, I, you know, it increased to 20%. Of course, more apparel production happening, you know, happen in captive DR members, this can also now create more incentives to build more local textile factories. And maybe this is the thinking of US fashion brands and retailers. Let's first find a way to increase the sourcing volume and then it will automatically lead to more business opportunity or leads to more investment to strengthen the local textile manufacturing capability in account of your members. So as always, you know, I see two different school of thought. Which one is more no, no, kind of convincing. I don't know, but you know, definitely the debate was going on. Well, Dr. Shane Liu, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and I know you've, you know, teaching at the um, and kind of following the industry and an economist um, for many years now. But how I'll be really interested and curious to find out, you know, especially over the last, let's say, three years, um, mm. pre-COVID until now, when you think about the conversations that you have with your students on mm -hmm. um, sourcing in the industry. What would you think would be probably maybe the two biggest areas where, you know, you've really seen the conversations shift or change of, you know, what you discuss or, or what you would, pro you know, have previous with your students versus now. Um, Cause I know shifting of sourcing, you know, changing of everything. I'd really be interested in how the conversations are starting to shift among the students. This is an excellent question, excellent question. Two things. One is, you know, I always say the fashion industry is traditionally, we call it a buyer-driven industry, which means, you know, fashion brands and the retailers, they totally understand the importance of understanding or catering for their consumers, that is, you know, their customers. Mm. Okay, what yeah. customer want, we just provide them, then I can be very successful. And somehow fashion brands and retailers, they take vendors, they take suppliers for granted. Oh, there are so many vendors out there, so many factors out there. No, I can just simply just place an order and um, so many suppliers I can choose from. So they, so they do not really kind of pay a lot of attention to the supplier. However, during COVID-19, they realize oh, all of a sudden supplier can determine my success or my fate actually is closely connected with what kind of vendors I'm working with. So strengthen, if you're talking to fashion brands and retailers, they will tell, okay, strengthening the relationship with vendors or strategically to, you know, building more kind of long-term relationship with my vendors, treating my vendors as strategic partners. This become a very, very hot and important topic. And I think this is something mm -hmm. really great because, you know, for the first time, brands and retailers, they will start to invest in their vendors rather than just treat them, you know, as, you know, like a short-term con you know, short contractor, but rather to, you know, to, to invest in them, to bring the resources to them. And don't forget, you know, in terms of vendors, many are located in developing countries yeah. and they hire a lot of, you know, female workers. So if you're 
So if we care about you know, the social economic impact of the apparel industry, I think this can be a great opportunity you know, to make our industry more socially responsible, um, you know, you know, really to leverage textile and apparel trade as an economic tool. You know, I think you know, this is something really great. And I don't think this trend will, you know, will simply end you know, after the COVID. I think it will just continue up becoming ever more important in the post-COVID world. So strengthening um, the vendor relationship, this is one thing. The second, definitely, I think is sustainability. And I would say, you know, one is the, the industry really, you know, you know, start to pay a lot of attention to, you know, the question how we can be, you know, you know, sustainable in the long run. Just thinking about so many kind of, you know, unsustainable aspect of our current business model, right? So many products be produced, but not consumed at all. Right, how to deal with all these unsold new clothing or how to deal with these used clothing. So it's not surprising at all to see topics like circular economy, okay, recycled clothing, they become more and more important. Even you know, like in, you know, as a scholar, you know, I do notice that the, you know, like the shifting research topic of my, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of my study, you know, like you know, these days I pay a lot of attention to the mapping of supply chain for used clothing, not just for regular new clothing, you know, how to understand the financial implications or the business model of carrying you know, clothing made from recycled material. And also if you talk to fashion companies, they're not just treating sustainability as something as their slogan, but rather they're really launching mm-hmm. you know, their innovative um, you know, idea, their, in, uh, their innovative um, projects or allocating more financial resources to try to strengthen you know, sustainability in their company from the textile raw material to developing new technology, you know, material to make their products more sustainable and also try to work with different stakeholders from consumers to civil society to make the supply chain more transparent, you know, to mapping their different, um, into mapping suppliers in different tiers or even educated consumers how to build a more sustainable shopping behavior. So yeah, so sustainability, I think definitely will just simply become more mm-hmm. important. And also just talking to our students. Yeah. You know, most of my, I mean, most students in my class are now Generation Z and I can tell you, they really genuinely care about sustainability. So they really kind of make me feel confident that we can have a better future. Why? Because companies are composed of people. So that's why I'm very confident that when my students come to the industry, they're working as sourcing manager, as you know, you know, merchandiser, their value will well change companies' behavior. So. Well, and you know, that's very true. So I had the pleasure last week of um, speaking at Belmont University, um, Bob and I both. And I was really, like you said, you know, the new generation and the questions that came from the students was around, well, how as a designer or how as someone in, coming into the industry, how do I connect with, you know, the, the cotton farmers or how do I connect in there? How do I question and challenge our textile partners to make sure what they're doing or the cotton they're sourcing, I understand and know that piece of it. And I, and I think that's really interesting because it's not the typical conversations that have been held in the industry. Right. Well, wonderful. Well, Dr. Shangler, I know I could probably ask you a ton more questions. So that just means that we'll just have to get you back on the um, podcast again. But I really do appreciate you taking the time and 
um, joining us and being on the podcast today. And I know that you gave out the information on your um, website, but um, Dr. Shang, if any, you know, our listeners have any questions or, you know, any, is the best way for them to reach out to you is to reach you through your website? Sure. First voice, you should listen to Modern Collins Diary for every episode. That's my favorite one. <laughs> hey, and we're true. Now, I appreciate that plug, though. <laughs> I'm now saying, you no, know, saying that as a loyal listener. Yeah, definitely. And also, um, definitely, you know, checking um, some industry publications like Just Style. That's my favorite. And, and also, you know, reach out to some industry associations like the U.S. Fashion Industry Association, American Apparel and Footwear Association. They're really resourceful and they just keep tracking what's going on in the industry. And also, you know, definitely, you know, check my blog site, shenmufashion.com. Uh, my goal is to make it like a knowledge hub, you know, for anyone who is interested in um, textile and apparel trade and resourcing and trade policy. And you may find something, you know, interesting to you. So... And I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us and hope that you enjoyed our show. Should you have any questions about the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program, please email me at e3cotton at basf.com. Also, don't forget to visit us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at E3 Sustainable Cotton. So thanks so much and see you next time.